0: everybody hi this is uptown drama with jeffrey and christy from theater three and this is just a podcast where jeffrey and i sit around and talk about theater and what's going on at theater three and sometimes we have a guest which we do today we've been away for a while haven't we jeffrey
1: yeah i give we needed to give everyone a break over the holidays and
0: yeah uh, regroup yeah mm yeah but we wanted to get back to doing the podcast. It's one of the most fun things that we're doing right now. It's one of the only things we're doing right now. (laughs) So uh, yeah, and today we have a really special guest uh, who works at our theater, but is unseen most of the time. Um, Our guest is Dante Flores. uh, And Dante is our resident, um, resident dramaturg? Uh, so what 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 do you do for us, Dante?
2: Uh, yeah. So what I would say I would do is that if you can flash back to the before times when you would go to see a delightful show at Theater Three, um, you'd either be emailed or would like have like a you know a program insert or something that was just some like here's some things to think about, man, as you, before you watch the play, and there's like you know a lot of sentences in there that have question marks kind of towards the end. Um, uh I wrote those. I put those question marks there. So you know, I, my process for doing that was I would read the play and if it was a new play, I'd ask the playwright what they wanted, you know, what they thought was like a vital thing to just have in your head going in without spoiling anything, of course. Um, and if it was like an already established published play, I would ask the director what do what should you know or what should people be thinking about or asking themselves before they uh, before they watch the play? Um, so that's what I was writing, um, and then, you know, that's also turned into like production dramaturgy, more traditional production jam- dramaturgy, excuse me, like putting together research materials like I did for uh, The Immigrant uh, that Jeffrey here directed. Um, so that's usually what I do with Theater Three. Cool.
1: Do I get to ask questions now?
0: Yeah, Jeffrey, <laughs> you get to ask questions now.
1: I have several. Um, the first one I want to know, because I you, you are also a performer. You you have acted yeah. in, in shows. You are uh, a playwright. You are there's There there are many things that you do and do well. When you get a script, when you read a script for the first time, which version of you reads it? Is it the dramaturg?
2: Uh, is it the actor? Usually, it's audience member uh, Dante who reads it first because that first read is always like you know, gut check. How did I respond to this? Like not even judging whether or not I liked it or didn't, or, you know, something worked or something didn't, but like just judging how, like clocking how I responded to it, honestly. Um, And usually when I read something, I'll have like, you know, the PDF open on one side of the screen and then I'll have like a notes app or something open on the other side where I can just kind of like clock it in real time. So usually none of those notes are usable for when I actually sit down to write, but it's it's a good way of kind of um, getting all that stuff first out on the page, so that way I kind of know what you know what headspace I'll be in, but also getting a lot of the a lot of the chaff out of the way. Like uh, this is something that I because I you know teach dramaturgy elsewhere as well, and this is something I teach my students is that like you should trust those impulses um, and you should trust that like gut instinct. Um, it's it's going to tell you something, and uh, it's going to tell you something honestly, but it's also important to refine that gut check into, you know, again, not whether this thing was good or bad, but, you know, just honestly what it reminds you of and what headspace it puts you in. So I would say the, on the first read, it's like audience member Dante. And then uh, probably second read is when dramaturg Dante comes in.
1: How are you? Like I, I, I encounter this problem for, for anyone who has to read a lot in, mm-hmm. in the job, which we all have to do that. Um, mm-hmm. Our profession is text-based. I have found over the years, I have to really, really concentrate if to read every word. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I have a, a and it's unfortunate, I think, that now I do this sort of skim reading quite often, early on, and then it's often hard for me to go back and really read a script. Is that something you encounter, or are you really good at word for word reading something, absorbing it all?
2: I am, I will say I am good at reading word for word when it comes to dialogue. Um, when it comes to stage directions is where I think like I can kind of fall into the habit of skim reading. And you know, there are some playwrights for whom that's not a problem, but then there are some playwrights like just as a classic example, everybody knows like Beckett, right? Is yeah. like of the plays, a lot of Beckett's plays or like Ionesco, like live inside of those stage directions. And there are a lot of modern playwrights who do that too. Like it was, I, I was, when the, you know, pandemic started, I was doing this play reading group with some friends and, uh, you know, we'd read it and then we'd come back and talk about it. And there was one play that we read, I think it was by Georgina Escobar. Um, I can't remember the name of it though, where it was like, there were stage directions about like the walls of the house, like kind of moving in and then moving back out. And they were these kind of like physical comedy or like physical visual storytelling moments that you just don't get, that you just don't get if, you know, uh, if you're not watching it if you're just reading it yeah
1: so i wanted to ask because you do create our what we i guess we we call them study guides often yeah. the materials that get sent out to subscribers and patrons have access to them mm-hmm. and you know there's a an element of that is trying to appeal to the most people mm-hmm. is it hard to just oh how do i ask this uh, because I, you're really good at providing great information. That also has substance, but maybe necessarily isn't um, charged with specific opinions. Is that hard mm. to do? <clears throat> do you wish it, there was another way to approach it that sort of ignited more uh,
2: response? Uh, I think, you know, there's a kind of libidinal id part of me that does want to like write the super like charged like study guide. Yeah. Uh, I won't deny that. What I will say though is that the same thing that kind of guides me through what guides me through writing those study guides in a way that like provides information and kind of, you know, puts you on the right track to start thinking about all the, I guess, questions that the director or playwright feel are pertinent. The thing that guides me in that is the same thing that guides my research when I do production dramaturgy, which is, you know, what are the needs of the production, right? That, and that's why it's important to me that I reach out to the playwright and to the director and ask, what do you feel the audience needs to know? Mm, yeah. um, because usually like you know, people don't just pick plays because they think a play is good. They pick a play because they feel that it is important. Whether or not they can articulate that or whether or not they do articulate that, I think will vary from playwright to playwright or director to director or theater company to theater company. But people pick plays because for whatever reason, somewhere along the play that, or somewhere along the way, excuse me, that play was resonant uh, with someone who was like involved in the, you know, either season selection or production process. So that to me tends to be my anchor when I write those uh, study guides is, you know, trying to make sure that like, not only is, trying to make sure that the audience understands at least on a, in a in a kind of non-spoilery, introductory way, why this thing was resonant to the director. So that way, you know, I think it makes for better question asking later, right? Like, let's say, you know, again, before times are hypothetical here. You go to see the play and then you go to like IHOP or something afterwards and talk about it right over a stack of pancakes. I think the... I, I, th- <laughs> uh, I think the the discussion can be better if everyone has been primed to ask better questions or at least ask uh, more relevant questions. So that's usually, that's what I view those study guides as, is an opportunity to kind of, uh, not so much prescribe, although really yes, kind of prescribe, but like kind of highlight, hey, this is the range of discussion that the director or the playwright had in mind when they wrote this thing. Obviously you should go outside this range, but you should know that this is kind of the neighborhood that, you know, the production was in when, when they wrote it. So that's, that's usually my process It's just kind of gauging what the needs of the production are and what the intent of the production is. One of my oh. favorites, <clears throat> I'm sorry, Christy.
0: No, you go ahead. You go ahead first.
2: One of
1: my favorites uh, that you've written recently was for the immigrant. And I think one of the reasons I love that one so much is that it was they're always study guides. Are always didactic to a degree. They're study guides, you know. Yeah. Uh, but that one was written. That was written in first person, I believe, and it was through it was through your eyes. It was more personal, as if you were an audience member too. Mm-hmm. You know, go back to your the, your first read of a of a script as an audience member. I really love that one because as a as a casual reader of it, not as the director or, or as the artistic director. I felt like you you were on our you were on my side there mm-hmm. as a, as another audience member and responding personally. I just really mm-hmm. love that, but still with the context we needed historically, um, informationally, all that stuff. But it which yeah. is one of my
2: favorites. I I gotta tell I really enjoyed writing that one or at least, you know, if, if anybody listening to this has read it, it's definitely one of the kind of like more emotionally freighted <laughs> ones. Yeah. Uh, yes. So I, I'll say I enjoyed writing it as much as someone could enjoy writing exactly, something like yeah. that. I, I, I'll say this, I am proud of that one. Um, and I think that because just for a little bit of context, you know, The Immigrant was coming out as a show right as the George Floyd protests were kicking off. Yeah. Um, and it felt, I'll be honest, it, to, to have written like a standard study guide that I normally do, where it's just like, Mark Harlick was born in Hamilton, Texas. <laughs> just would have felt weird and wrong. <laughs> so I was just like, ah, let's, I, look, this is on everybody's brain. Let's, let's, and these things, at least in my brain are connected right? This question of who does this country belong to? So we might as well just say right then and there, hey, look, this is the context you're watching this thing in. So, um, because nothing exists outside of its context. There's, you know, there's nothing that, uh, plays don't just appear, right? Like playwrights are responding to things. Um, even if the playwright doesn't go into it with a, you know, overtly or positively, like, Political intent. Things don't exist outside of their context, so I think that to me was really important, right? And productions don't exist outside of their context, so that was it. It, it felt right to say that. It would have felt wrong not to say it.
0: What uh, you talked a little bit about, like having the conversation afterwards at IHOP, right? I am hmm. um, one of those people that I'll just I'll say it plain. I don't. I don't like when. I don't like talkbacks. I'll just say it mm-hmm. I, mm-hmm. as a performer. When I'm in a show, I and, and people say it's like, oh, you're invited to come to the talkback, you know, and sit in the audience. I understand why they're where they're why they're valuable. And I understand why we need to have them as an administrator, as a director, mm-hmm. you know, that kind of stuff. Uh, I personally don't like them because as a performer, it, they don't really help me. Mm-hmm. And it usually if it's not facilitated uh, smartly, it usually devolves into how did you learn all those lines or, you know, all that stuff that doesn't matter, you know, and or or you will or you will eventually have an actor on stage that wants to talk about what their process and how they feel about <laughs> the play that they just did. And like, I can't I, I don't think there's anything that i hate more than an actor talking about being an actor which i'm doing right <laughs> now actually but anyway what do you think what do you think is more valuable or 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 is there one that's more valuable do you find that a discussion immediately after the audience has seen the show like lights out lights come up let's talk about it do you think that's more productive than than taking the time and Going to a bar or going to IHOP and 45 minutes or an hour later saying, All right, let's talk about this show. Because you know, like David Mammoth, yeah. David Mammoth like specifically says, You cannot have a talk back immediately after my show. You mm-hmm. must wait an hour later and it must happen at a bar or like something like that. Yeah. Uh, how how do you feel about about those things?
2: I you know, with I used to be a big fan of the talk back in the audience right after the show. As time has gone on, I, I just, I just don't care. <laughs> <laughs> um, I and like, uh, mostly because it's like, I, I, you know, after a show, I do want to grab a drink or grab a meal or something, right? And I think that is the perfect forum to talk about it is like over a meal or over a drink or something because then, you know, you because you've 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 taken yourself out of the situation, right? Like if the talkback is happening in the theater, then that theater is still kind of, uh, it's still kind of glowing with the residue of the show. And as a result, it's hard to judge it objective or like critique it objectively, critique it outside of its context, right? Uh, or not outside of its context, but like critique it in a kind of a neutral territory, right? I think that like bars and restaurants are like neutral territory. And as a result, I think are like the optimal space to talk about a piece of theater, um, or talk about a movie you've just seen. So I, I like, I like the idea of seeing a show and, you know, obviously this is not to say like, you know, you take like an aesthetic vow of silence on the way to Waffle House, but like, um, although I have done that before (laughs) it, you you know, obviously people are going to have the conversations that they have, but I think that it's like, if what you're going to have is that critical discussion, then I think, over a meal and away from the theater is the place to do it. Cause then you've had time to think about it. And, you know, I tend to think you think better on a, on a full stomach <laughs> after you've had some like coffee or a beer or something. I think the one that
1: I, I don't disagree with either of you the, the one thing it does though I also enjoy heading somewhere else to talk about it but typically what that means is you're heading somewhere else to talk about it with your people. Mm. Mm-hmm. That's true. And the, the talkback format makes you talk with people who aren't your people. <laughs> yeah. no, that is true. Yeah, that's true. Yeah.
0: That is absolutely true.
1: Uh, and often that goes horribly wrong, you know, if you don't have a good facilitator. Right. Yeah.
0: Yeah. And like I said, when you have a good facilitator, somebody who knows how to not take over the conversation, but lead a conversation and ask the right questions, like we do they can be very, very, very fruitful, yeah. very, very productive. Um, I think mostly as an actor, I don't, I don't like participating in them because I don't like talking about the process yeah. right after I've been through it. And, and often, I don't know what the fuck I've done until 30 days after the show closes, you know? So <laughs> like, I'm like, oh, now I can talk about that shit. Cool. Where do you, where do you teach dramaturgy?
2: I teach dramaturgy at uh, Booker T. Washington right now, the high school, the the good old arts high school downtown. Um, I'm teaching uh, to to high school students right now, specifically Latinx dramaturgy. So it's really just kind of, you know, introduction to dramaturgy, Are like they, introduction to like, you know, principles of it and stuff. And
0: do they, do you, I mean, that's not something that is usually taught in high school. Yeah which I I think it should be. I think if you're, I think if you're a theater student, then you should learn it immediately. A lot of kids leave high school and don't know how to do text analysis. Mm
2: -hmm.
0: You think they're enjoying it?
2: I hope so. Uh, They seem to be. (laughs) I try not to be boring. Um, (laughs) I teach it over Zoom. So there's no way for me to like turn my chair backwards and like level with them. But, uh, um, if I were in person, I would be doing that. I, I hope I can give off that vibe remotely. Well, oh, go ahead, Christy.
0: No, you go ahead. I didn't.
1: What's uh What's exciting you right now? Uh, in, in, in the wor- in our world in the theater world
2: in the theater world. I, you know, <laughs> this will be a slightly silly answer, but uh, the Ratatouille TikTok musical was was <laughs> was was actually it was pretty. Pretty cool to watch, um, and I think that like you know the I, I was talking to some of my students about it. I think that like the important thing to note about that is that the Ratatouille musical just kind of started as a meme on TikTok, and then it this you know TikTok for those who are listening is a uh, social media app where people can record short videos, where they can lip sync to songs, they can do edited videos that are like a minute long or something. I am not on TikTok. Uh, My friends are and they send me TikTok. So I can like, I can, my my, like TikTok consumption is more curated than even the like the algorithm for the website itself curates. So I'm getting like the double distilled TikTok content, getting (laughs) the best of the best. So it arose kind of organically out of like one person, you know, writing and performing a song about it. And then a bunch of other people started collaborating and sharing like character designs that they had made and then songs that they had written and then like performing songs that other people had written. And then I think like Jeremy O. Harris who wrote Slave Play and also like now like, you know, theater producing like Extraordinaire and It Boy has like, he underwrote it and then it became this huge success and it had like Andre De Shields in it and like Adam Lambert. And then like Wayne Brady was in it too, playing like, you know, Titus Burgess's dad, Adam Lambert played his brother, Andre De Shields played uh, the, the food critic in it. And then it had like the 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 kid from Dear Evan Hansen in it, not Ben Platt, but the guy like after Ben Platt. And I don't know his name because I'm not a musical theater person. So it, it, it rose organically out of this stuff, right? And then it kind of snowballed and turned into like a full-fledged musical that is honestly pretty entertaining. It's like a well put together thing, right, Um, considering. And, you know, I think an important thing, the other half of that is that it was able to bypass the like traditional commercial American musical theater commercial machinery, right? Like it didn't didn't have to go through that channel And as a result was able to put itself together really quickly. And it was collaborative in a way that a lot of regional theaters aren't, which just means that like, you know, this is going to be, uh, you know, even after pandemic times, even after the theaters are like safe to go to uh, epidemiologically, this is also going to be an alternate Mode of you know production for theater because like it pulled in a million dollars or like just about a million dollars, which just on pay what you can tickets. Um, which Jeremy O'Harris was quick to clarify that is a very good week on Broadway, so this was like this was a success. Uh, all factors considered it was a success. That's fascinating
1: because my. Uh... Uh, I didn't know that there was money involved because that was going to be my question. Did anyone make any money? Did anyone get paid? So everyone sure who contributed so. got m- money.
2: Well, I think it was. It was also a lot of the the, you know, proceeds went to this thing called the Actors Fund. I think I don't know yeah. the exact name. Again, I am not a musical theater person, so I am not on the up and up on my Ratatouille knowledge. But <laughs> but it it did go to like a fund. If my understanding is correct. Cool.
1: Yeah, because it's you know I'm always interested in the life cycle of this stuff because mm-hmm. in some ways I think you might have described the birth and the death of a phenomenon. All <laughs> over there, you know, uh, of how it went from organic collaborative to uh, full-on sort of organized thing. You know, you yeah. Know, hey, so what's the lifespan of this? I and mean, where, yeah. li- where does traditional live theater fit into all of this?
2: Well, that's the thing i don't i don't know what the actual life cycle of a production like this is going to be until we've seen like two or three more of them yeah um yeah i think there's going to be attempts by like you know by like big name producers in new york who like are just always chomping on cigars and like pinstripe suits uh to like try and replicate this but i think the the organic. And honestly like meme nature of it is the really important factor like that's a that is an irreducible quality of uh of the ratatouille <laughs> phenomenon
1: we um we're actually this podcast is going to go out before i guess the one we recorded last night which is mm. an insane um uh <laughs> version of playing dungeons and dragons but with it with theater and it turned into like just the process of describing what we wanted to do beyond playing the game and it, it being related to dragons, it was just the, the massive amount of sort of creative vomiting that happened in that thing was so very fun. And I keep ever since we did it last night, I keep thinking about how how does this turn into like how does this become theater in mm-hmm. some new interesting way? while we still can't do good old traditional theater, because I don't know, I don't know what the future is of good old traditional theater. I don't know, I, I, I just bring that up because I think it's akin to somebody just started doing something on TikTok. Well, we just started mm. playing theater Dungeons and Dragons and it turned into this amazing sort of visual
2: yeah
1: um, feast if, if people are good at putting that stuff in their, in their heads when they hear yeah. it. So, so anyway.
2: Yeah, no, I mean, but that's like, you know, I'm starting to see more and more like theater people, like not just in Dallas, but like around the country. Like some friends of mine are also doing like you know theater based or Dungeons and theater based Dungeons and Dragons or Dungeons and Dragons based theater. Um, so it's definitely a thing that people are thinking about. I, I've only played two sessions of Dungeons and Dragons, like ever in my life. But the dungeon master, uh, shout out to my friend Fiddler you know, he really wanted to emphasize this, like, collective storytelling, theater of the mind yeah. uh, quality of it. Then, and, and, like, he said that, like, very um, very straightforwardly the first time we sat down to play it. Um, and I think that's what a lot of other people are plugging into as well. You know, for in because we're lacking a live um, ethereal story, kind of storytelling in our lives right now, I think Dungeons & Dragons, for some people, is really kind of filling that, you know, filling that role in people's lives.
0: Yeah, it certainly is in this house. <laughs> Thank you. This is this was such a great conversation. What 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 do you think? Okay, so I have one more question for you, and then mm-hmm. we we are we'll we, we'll be out of time. But uh, how or when we do get back to doing theater, if we ever get back to theater, mm-hmm. um, maybe that's not a good way to ask it. What are the plays? What are your What are your favorite plays right now? What are some of the things that you've been reading or of all time favorite plays of yours? What is it that that gets you excited? Who gets you excited as a playwright?
2: Uh, this is like the Mark Marin like who are your guys question. Yeah, uh, I you know I will I will admit that in many ways I am kind of like a fuddy duddy. Uh, <laughs> uh, I. I am at once looking forward to, and not looking forward to whatever Brecht productions are coming after this. <laughs> it, because I love Brecht, I do. Um, like not just as a playwright, not just as a theorist, but as like a poet and you know writer and political thinker too. Um, so I am, you know, I, I am at once eager and dreading the moment where like the Lake mini ha ha time players put on like the good person of Szechuan. And then there's like <laughs> nine articles about how insensitive it was like <laughs> it's, it's, <laughs> and in like, in many ways, everything will be different, but in many ways, everything will be the same. <laughs> um, so I'm looking forward to whatever Brecht comes next, just for the sheer fun of it. I will say I, there, there was one, it's not published yet so I don't know like if I can say its name so I won't I don't know what kind of problems that might pose. so I just won't say it but there's one play that I've been teaching my students as part of this Latinx dramaturgy class that like used puppets and like music and like you know was about like the history of visual art in Mexico that like I'm really eager to see like that one in particular uh, to see where it goes. And it's like, you know, written by this playwright based out of Austin. Yeah, so I'm really eager to see where that one in particular goes.
0: I wish we knew the title.
2: <laughs> what ta- constitutes a good you, production? You tell me the- later. Yeah, I'll, I'll tell you all later. <laughs> what
1: constitutes a good production of The Good Person of Sichuan?
2: <laughs> yeah, that's the thing is that like, I feel there's like a lot of Brecht that it's like, When Brecht hits, he hits, and when he misses, he misses. And like,
0: it was a a different time, (laughs) y'all. It was a different time. Yeah. I'm not, I'm not excusing it. I'm just saying that here we are in the benefit, sitting in the benefits of 2021 now. So it was a different time. (laughs) Anyway. Thank you so much for joining us, Dante. I, yeah, of course. We look forward to reading your study guides every month and and having your insight into the stuff that we are are doing at the theater. And um, yeah, we will talk to you soon.
2: Yeah. Thanks, Dan. thanks everybody. Thanks, Jeffrey. Thanks, Christy. Bye. 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 Bye.